name is Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. I do apologise about the delay. I usually try and have these episodes ready for every Monday, but I had to fly back to Edinburgh to graduate and I've just been recovering from a cold. I was waiting till I got a bit better, so I'm super sorry if I still sound a bit bunged up. But today we are tackling the Treaty of Lisbon, which came into force on the 1st of December 2009. It brought new lawmaking powers to the European Parliament, putting it on equal footing with the Council of Ministers when it came to deciding what the EU does and how its money is spent, changing the way Parliament functions with other institutions, especially by giving MEPs more influence in the running of the EU. Sources for today include the treaties themselves, of course, websites from the European Parliament and cvce.eu. As always, you can find all the sources in the description box. Just before we start, I'd like to remind you all that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. This is going to be a long one, so grab yourself a cup of tea, make yourself comfortable, and let's get cracking. So, as mentioned in the previous episode, when discussing the political side of things as opposed to the purely legal, one of the criticisms of the Nice IGC was about the lack of clarity of the European Union's future. The European Council then adopted the text of a declaration that launched the Debate on the Future of Europe, the first chapter analysing the strengths and weaknesses of the European integration process, the second bringing together the issues that the Future of Europe Convention will tackle, which was to be held in Brussels in 2002, and the third setting out how the debate will be organised. The declaration set out key issues such as the division of competences between the EU and member states, the simplification of the EU's legislative instruments, maintaining an inter-institutional balance, improving the efficacy of the decision-making procedure, and the constitutionalisation of the treaties. Furthermore, what was key about this convention was that another one of its aims for the next IGC was to be as transparent as possible. I won't get into precisely what the convention did or did not manage to achieve, but what I think you all need to know for now is that in 2003, a treaty establishing a constitution for Europe was drafted. This draft treaty made it past the European Council and its Italian presidency and was then approved by the European Parliament, only to just be rejected by national referendums in the Netherlands and ever the rebel France. This meant the treaty could not be ratified and thus not completed. That is not to say that the convention was a total flop, the impact of MEPs was seen as decisive, and they left a, quote, strong imprint on the debates and on the outcome of the convention, being instrumental in the formation of political families comprising of MEPs and national MEPs. In this, Parliament managed to achieve quite a few of its original aims, one of which included the Treaty of Lisbon. It is due to the negative outcome of the referendums for the European Constitution in 2005 that the Lisbon Treaty came to be after the European Council had a two-year, quote, period of reflection. On the basis of the Berlin Declaration of March 2007, the European Council released a detailed mandate for the next IGC under the Portuguese presidency. The IGC finished its work on October 2007 and the treaty was signed at the European Council of Lisbon on the 13th of December 2007, ratified by all member states and I'm so sorry about my phone. So we're gonna start with the objectives and legal principles. First and foremost, the treaty that established the European community all those years ago is officially renamed the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, or TFEU, and the word community is replaced by union, the union now taking the place of the community and being the community's legal successor. The Lisbon Treaty did not transfer any additional exclusive competences onto the Union, but it did change the way the Union exercises its existing powers and introduced a few new shared powers by enhancing citizens' participation and protection, 
creating a new institutional setup and modifying the decision-making processes for increased efficiency and transparency. All of this attains a higher level of parliamentary scrutiny and democratic accountability. The treaty does not contain any article that formally enshrines the supremacy of union law over national legislation, but a declaration to the treaty did, Declaration Number 17. Another thing the Lisbon Treaty addressed was something that was long overdue, clarification of union powers. Under the Categories and Areas of Competence section, the Lisbon Treaty inserts a new title listing three types of competences. For all those law students out there, listen up because competence is something that will come up again and again in your studies. There's exclusive competence, where the union alone can legislate with member states only implementing. There's shared competence, which is pretty self-evident as well. The member states can legislate and adopt legally binding measures if the union has not done so, sort of sharing the responsibility. And then there's supporting competence, where the EU adopts measures to support or complement member state policies. The EU also has an opportunity to hand back any areas of competence, provided the treaty is also revised. Article 2b states that the Union has exclusive competence in the customs union, establishing of competition rules necessary for the functioning of the internal market, the monetary policy, the conservation of marine biological resources under the common fisheries policy, and the common commercial policy. It further states that the Union has exclusive competence for the conclusion of an international agreement, given that this is allowed in a legislative act, or if it's necessary for the Union to do so to enable it to exercise its eternal competence, or insofar as its conclusion may affect common rules or alter their scope. The article further states that the shared competence with the member states applies in the following principal areas. I won't mention all of them because there are loads, um, but they include the internal market, social policy, economic, social and territorial cohesion, agriculture and fisheries, trans-European networks, the environment, energy and area of freedom, security and justice. The article further stipulates that in areas such as research, technological development and space, the union has the competence to carry out any activities, especially when it comes to defining and implementing programmes, but the exercise of that competence will not hinder member states from exercising theirs. Article 2e just lists the areas where the EU may support member states, like protection and improvement of human health, culture, tourism, civil protection and administrative cooperation, amongst other things. Under the final provisions section of the Lisbon Treaty, in the newly inserted Article 46a, the EU now has full legal personality. What this means is that the Union can sign international treaties in the areas of its attributed powers and is capable of joining an international organisation. Member states who wish to sign international agreements may only do so if it is compatible with EU law. Something else the Lisbon Treaty created is Article 50, dreaded Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. It is in this article where a formal procedure is added that member states must follow if they wish to withdraw from the EU in accordance with their constitutional requirements, as I'm sure many of you know by now. Guys, just wait until I finish writing the Brexit episodes. You will not get me to shut up, trust me. As we've heard from previous episodes, slowly but surely the three pillars of the EU are being absorbed, and the Lisbon Treaty completes this by absorbing the final aspects of the third pillar, the area of freedom, security and justice, into the first. This gets rid of the previous intergovernmental structure, as the acts adopted in this area are now subject to the ordinary legislative procedure, such as qualified majority voting and co-decision, using legal instruments of the community methods, regulations, directives and decisions, unless otherwise specified. Now, before the Lisbon Treaty came into force, the Council, Member State Governments or Commission could all propose treaty amendments, but now so can the European Parliament. 
What would happen normally is that amendments would require a convention, which would recommend amendments to an IGC, something we've seen plenty of times before. The IGC would then determine any possible amendments by common accord. Now, however, it is also possible to amend treaties without the IGC and through, quote, a simplified revision of procedures, where the revision concerns the internal policies and actions of the Union. This revision then gets adopted as European Council decision, but of course might still need ratifying by member states. Moving on to enhanced democracy and better protection of fundamental rights. The Lisbon Treaty expresses the three fundamental principles of democratic equality, representative democracy and participatory democracy, which takes the form of a citizen's initiative. The Charter of Fundamental Rights is not incorporated directly into the treaty, but acquires a legally binding character through Article 6 TEU, which gives the Charter the same legal value as the treaties. This article is phrased as follows. The Union recognises the rights, freedoms and principles set out in the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU of 7th December 2000, as adapted at Strasbourg on the 12th of December 2007, which shall have the same legal value as the treaties. Now, this article becomes quite interesting when it comes to the European Convention on Human Rights, but I will address this later when I actually go through the ECHR specifically. So, let's talk about the change in institutional setup. We'll go through these one by one, starting with the European Parliament. According to Article 14 TEU, Parliament is composed of representatives of the Union citizens, not of representatives of the people of the states. Concerning legislative powers, they've increased through the ordinary legislative procedure, replacing the former co-decision procedure, with a new one applying to more than 40 new policy areas. This raises the total number of policy areas to 73. A new budgetary procedure creates full parity between the Council and Parliament when it comes to the approval of the annual budget, with a multi-annual financial framework having to be agreed by Parliament as well. When it comes to the Commission, Parliament must elect the Commission's President by a majority of its members on a proposal from the Council, which is obliged to select a candidate by qualified majority, also taking into account the European election's outcome. Now, the maximum number of MEPs in the European Parliament has been set at 751, with citizen representation being, quote, digressively proportional. Now, I'll have to admit, I had no idea what this meant, and I asked my sister who's doing a maths degree, and she also was a bit confused, so we're going to forget about that phrase, and I'll describe it a different way. The maximum number of seats per member states is reduced to 96, while the minimum number is increased to 6. Now, since Brexit might or might not happen, in February 2018, Parliament voted to reduce the number of its seats from 751 to 705 after Brexit. Sorry, to 705 after Brexit, and then redistribute the seating arrangement so that some seats would be offered to the member states who are underrepresented. So I believe this means that will be an extra 27 seats. Now, let's visualise it this way. Germany has 96 seats, taking up 12.8%. France has 74, taking up 9.9, and this continues all the way down until we get to Malta, which only has 6 seats, representing only 0.8 out of the 751. Essentially, the larger the state, the more citizens that need to be represented by a member of the European Parliament. So, according to the German Federal Statistical Office, the latest figures show 83 million inhabitants. This means that there is one representative for every 864,000 inhabitants. Whereas if we take the opposite extreme, there are only around 440,800 inhabitants of Malta, meaning there is one representative for every 73,000, not 864,000. Therefore, arguably, the voters of Malta have more influence than, uh, say, the German voters do. Okay, moving on. After the Lisbon Treaty, there are two councils. One, 
the European Council and two, the Council of the European Union. So what is the difference? The Council of the European Union is one of the two legislative bodies of the EU, the other one being the European Parliament. The Council consists of one minister per member state, which is why it's sometimes called the Council of Ministers. The Lisbon Treaty keeps the principle of double majority voting, both citizens and member states, although this changed in November 2014. The Council meets publicly when it comes to the drafting of legislative acts, the meeting usually comprising of two parts, dealing with legislative acts and then non-legislative activities. Unlike the European Council, the presidency rotates every six months, but there are 18-month group presidencies of three member states to ensure some continuity. Qualified majority, just to remind ourselves, as we touched upon this in a previous episode, is when, in supporting a proposal of, say, the Commission or the Vice President of the Commission or High Representative of the Union, a majority of 55% is reached, of council members which account for at least 65% of the population. You can find this in Article 16 of the TEU. Now, when there is no proposal from the Commission or any other guys, then the majority increases to 72. You can find this in Article 238 TFEU. In order to block legislation, it requires a minimum of four member states to vote against it. The European Council, on the other hand, is only formally recognised as an institution via the Lisbon Treaty. Its goal? To provide the impetus necessary for the Union's development and to define the general political directions and priorities. That's another pretty vague goal, but there you have it. This council does not have any legislative functions. Rather than having a presidency for six months, the president is elected by qualified majority for a renewable term of 30 months, which helps improve continuity and coherence. Moving on. Next is the vice president of the commission slash high representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. But to make things easier, we'll just call this VPHR. The VPHR is appointed by qualified majority of the European Council and the President of the Commission also has to agree on this. This role is responsible for the EU's common foreign and security policy, as the name might suggest, and has the right to put forward proposals. Moving on to the Commission, so now that the President is chosen and elected taking into account European's elections outcome, quote, the political legitimacy of the office is increased. The president is responsible for the internal organisation of the college, which means appointment of commissioners, distribution of portfolios and requests to resign under specific circumstances. The Court of Justice of the EU only had a minor update, which is that its jurisdiction is now extended to all union activities except CFSP. Individuals are now also able to access the court. Next up, we have policies and competences improving the efficiency of policy making, as well as making it more democratic. As I've already mentioned, the Lisbon Treaty extends the ordinary legislative procedure and qualified majority voting to a larger number of policy areas to contribute towards EU integration by making decision-making more efficient. In the ordinary legislative procedure, EU's countries do not have a right of veto, and there are more ways of reaching an agreement. This doesn't mean that EU member states will always be willing to give up their power of opposition in certain policy areas, especially those deemed sensitive, where, for example, national sovereignty comes into play, or foreign policy, immigration and justice. It is in these cases that the special legislative procedure and unanimous voting is used. So what the Lisbon Treaty does is to introduce institutional clauses, which offer institutional mechanisms, which are not similar, but they pursue the same objective. What this does is make it possible for EU member states to still integrate into these sensitive areas. The clauses are passerelle clauses, break clauses and accelerator clauses. We'll start off with the passerelle clauses. These allow for derogation from the legislative procedures initially provided for by the treaties. 
Under certain conditions, they make it possible to switch from the special legislative procedure to the ordinary one in order to adopt an act in a given policy area or to switch from voting by unanimity to qualified majority voting. Now, activating a passerelle clause depends on the decision being adopted unanimously by the Council or the European Council. Therefore, all EU countries must be in agreement before such a clause may be activated. Article 48 of the TEUs allows for a general passerelle clause to be applicable to all European policies, and there are six other passerelle clauses specific to certain European policies. Break clauses, on the other hand, concern three areas in particular measures for coordinating the social security systems for migrant workers, judicial cooperation in criminal matters, and the establishment of common rules for certain criminal offences. You can find these in Articles 48, 82, 83 of the TFEU, respectively. These clauses enable the ordinary legislative procedure to be applied in these three areas. The breaking mechanism restrains the ordinary legislative procedure, as the name might suggest. So if a member state doesn't agree on a draft legislation, as it may, for example, believe that the fundamental principles of its social security system or its criminal justice system are being threatened, they can then submit an appeal to the European Council, which then suspends the whole thing. The European Council can then either send the draft back to the Council, which will continue with the procedure taking into account the observations made, or it can stop the procedure permanently and request a new proposal from the Commission if deemed appropriate. It is thanks to the break clauses that some of the more stubborn EU member states have allowed the ordinary legislative procedure to apply in certain policies instead of the unanimous voting rule. Last but not least, we have the accelerator clauses, which accelerate the integration between EU countries by establishing enhanced cooperation in certain areas. So they allow derogation from the engagement procedure for enhanced cooperation, which is considered to be formed once it includes at least nine EU member states. The Council, Parliament and Commission are simply informed of the Member States' wish to establish enhanced cooperation. Accelerator clauses contain four main areas. Judicial cooperation in criminal matters, the establishment of common rules for certain criminal offences, the creation of European Public Prosecutor's Office and police cooperation. You can find these in Articles 82, 83, 86 and 87 of the TFEU respectively. It's worth bearing in mind that concerning cooperation and criminal offences, the accelerator clause directly results from activating break clauses. When the break clause is activated and the legislative procedure stopped, countries can then use the accelerator clause to continue and conclude the legislative procedure between them under the framework of enhanced cooperation. And just as a quick side note, relatively recently, in 2017, then-President Juncker announced initiatives to move away from the principle of unanimity in a few areas by using passerelle clauses, and so far they've done this in areas of common foreign security policy, and similarly for selected tax policy issues. Lastly, other initiatives of the Lisbon Treaty include significantly strengthening the subsidiarity principle by involving national parliaments in the EU decision-making process. Now, concerning other clauses that are worth mentioning, the Lisbon Treaty introduces a mutual defence clause, which provides that all member states of the EU are to provide help to a member state under attack. Solidarity clauses provide that the Union and each member state has to provide assistance by all possible means to the member state affected by a human or natural catastrophe or terrorist attack. A permanent structured cooperation is open to all member states which commit themselves to taking part in its European military equipment programme and to provide combat units available for immediate action. For this cooperation, one needs to have obtained a qualified majority in the Council after having consulted with the VPHR. Right, this turned out to be a bloody long episode, so we definitely need a summary for this one. Right, here it goes. The Lisbon Treaty was as a result of the failure of the European Constitution. It clarified Union powers, specifically in terms of areas of competence, 
exclusive, shared and supporting areas of competence exist. The Lisbon Treaty adds Article 46A, which gives the EU full legal personality, and Article 50, determining the procedures member states need to follow if they want to leave the EU. It finally absorbs the final of the three pillars of the EU, meaning the previous intergovernmental structure has changed, and the treaty amendments can happen without an IGC. The Lisbon Treaty also addresses the three fundamental principles of democratic equality, representative democracy and participatory democracy, all of which enhance democracy and generally protects human rights better. Parliament has increased legislative powers through replacing the co-decision procedure with the ordinary legislative procedure, which means no right of veto. Maximum number of MEPs is at 751, with the maximum number of seats per member states reduced to 96, while the minimum increased to 6. There are two types of councils, the European Council and the Council of Europe. Council of Europe is the only other legislative body apart from the European Parliament and consists of one minister per member state, whereas the European Council's goal is to provide the impetus necessary for the Union's development and to define the general political directions and priorities. The Lisbon Treaty introduces institutional clauses, passerelle clauses, break clauses and accelerator clauses. And there you have it. It is done. A big, big shout out to the Treaty of Lisbon page on the European Parliament website. I try to find the most comprehensive run-through of the Treaty of Lisbon, especially since the treaty itself is kind of a mess to read through. Hopefully I covered most of the important things in the treaty, although I'm pretty sure I did, as this is certainly the longest episode to date, but you just can't leave the stuff out. In terms of what we will cover next episode, this was actually the last major treaty of the EU that we will go through. I think we are now ready to tackle some major European principles and case law, Um, but as to what I have planned for the near future, the next legal commercial update will be about big data and data ethics. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye!